Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. Good evening, guys. Welcome to The Drive. Um, A bunch of you came in late, uh, so I'll say it again, especially for those of you who are first-time visitors. Welcome. We are a gathering that is aiming to engage the young professional demographic in the greater Orlando area. I don't even know what that means, if there is a greater Orlando area. How about just Orlando? Uh, And we we wanna do that uh, in order to make Christ known, introduce people to Jesus so that we can make him known. And we're gonna do that through uh, the studying of the Bible, through engaging Christian disciplines of prayer and of worship, of confession and repentance, Uh, so that we can grow, Uh, not just numerically, but grow in our faith, that we can grow roots deep in grace, so we can spark a revival of service and of sacrifice in our city. We wanna make Jesus famous in our city, but I'm convinced it starts with making Jesus famous in our hearts. And so it happens one individual at a time that, that falls in love with Jesus over and over and over again. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, helps us a lot with this goal because uh, Jesus wasn't just Paul's savior. Uh, at least that's, that's what I'm getting from our study in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're walking through the book of Philippians and Paul is pretty clear that Jesus isn't just his Lord and his savior, but Jesus is his life. Uh, that for this guy, for Paul, Jesus was everything to Paul. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the story of Paul, but he used to go by the name of Saul, which was his Jewish designation. And man, Saul was one of the rising stars in the Judaism of his day. He, he kind of had it all together. He had the best education. He came from the right family pedigree. Uh, according to the law, as we find out in Philippians 3, he was, he was blameless. Dude was perfect. None of his contemporaries could hold a candle to him. He was flawless and he went to great lengths to defend his Jewish religion, even to the point of persecuting those blasphemous Christians. All of that, of course, changed that one day that he ran into and was confronted by the crucified, risen Jesus. If you're familiar with the story, Acts chapter nine, Jesus is on the road to Damascus and he's got letters in his hand from the high priest giving him permission to go and and grab more Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. And he stopped dead in his tracks when this blinding light hits him out of nowhere. Now, Paul is steeped enough in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament to to at least understand that this light coming from heaven had something to do with the glory of God. Maybe perhaps he thought back to the Exodus account of his ancestors when they were led in the wilderness by a cloud by day and and the fire by night and this great light representing the glory of God. And and perhaps he thought of Isaiah in chapter six when Isaiah was was met with the glory of God. Man, Isaiah fell on on his face before the Lord. And so Paul did the same thing. He falls on his face and he cries out, who are you? And this voice from heaven says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, what's your name? And says, I am Jesus. And I think that moment for Paul changed everything. 
because whoever this was, this figure saying it's Jesus, Jesus was identifying himself with the individuals that Paul had been persecuting. Just go back two chapters in the book of Acts and, and Paul was standing as the head of the first Christian execution squad, right? As they stoned this guy named Stephen to death. Stephen was this devout Christian and a deacon in the early church and Saul stood there as they beat him with stones because he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. And here Paul was hearing from this crucified, risen Jesus, shrouded in glory. And Jesus was telling him, listen, it's me whom you're persecuting. And I think this was the moment for Paul and specifically Jesus's identification of himself with his followers that completely flipped Paul's theology upside down. Because for the first time, Jesus was connecting, or Paul was connecting that Jesus was intimately connected with his believers, so much so that what they experienced, persecution, Jesus experienced it as well. And so Paul left from that moment with this idea, this understanding that, okay, Jesus, his followers, they're intimately connected so close. And I tell you all of that because Paul would just a few years later write these words in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, for to me, living, is Christ. We camped out on those verses, or that verse, when we first started this series uh, about a month and a half ago. He writes, Philippians 1.21, for to me, living is Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. It reads kind of wonky in the English. Essentially, Paul's saying, listen, I don't, I don't know what living means to you, but to me, living is Jesus. It's summed up in one word, Christ. Christ is my life. It's not hard to identify what living meant for Paul previous to that run-in with Jesus, right? I mean, to pre-Jesus Paul, Saul, we find out in chapter three that living was the law. Living was the approval of his fellow Pharisees. Living was the execution of anybody who stood in the way of his Jewish religion, but Everything had changed when he met Jesus. And to Paul, Jesus was now his life and death. Death was now just gain to him. Everything flipped for Paul when he came in contact with Jesus. Now everything that he saw, man, he saw it oriented around his relationship to Jesus. And tonight, that's where we pick up. We, we left off last week looking at Paul talking about his circumstances and how he wasn't allowing his circumstances to get the final word in his life, but that he was learning to see through his circumstances to the God who was at work in the midst of them and how God was using his chains literally while he was in prison to expand and to advance the gospel. And tonight we pick up in chapter one, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And what we see in this passage, verses 18 to 26, is Paul prioritizing what's important to him in life. The priorities for one who claims to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because as we see in Paul's life, man, priorities tend to get rearranged when everything you value in life gets flipped on its head. Everything for Paul now value was Jesus. What was Jesus' relationship to things was how Paul identified value. His whole foundation, everything flowed from that. And I think that's one of the reasons that Paul was so full of joy as we've been walking through this letter because Paul knew that whatever he was in, man, Christ was in it 
too. Christ was with him, so he was never really without hope. He was never separated from Jesus. And because Paul's vision was fixed on Jesus, I mean, he did not have to be discouraged by his circumstances. I'm sure Paul was in prison. We've said that a hundred times. But he was really a prisoner of Christ. He was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but really he was, he was chained to Jesus. He was tethered to Christ by the love of God. And so Paul was in Christ before he was ever in prison. And that was what drove his world view. And so living meant Christ now. That's what last week was about. Remember, Paul was reporting to the Philippians what was going on in his life and an account of his situation. And his diagnosis was that his circumstances, they were really working to advance the gospel. His imprisonment was really serving to save everyone that it was coming in contact with. It was pioneering a work of God in places that might not have gone if he wasn't in chains. So question, has did anyone experience, those of you who were here last week and walking through the word, anybody experience a greater degree of, I don't know, peace or, or grace in the midst of your circumstances because of this word last week? Yeah? Anybody want to share? You don't need to. I saw, I saw a couple heads go like that, so that's, that's good news. My hope is that as I wax eloquently up here, it actually uh, applies and affects the shoe leather during the week. Last week, we saw Paul show us how to maintain joy and optimism regardless of what was happening around us. Tonight, he continues that stream of thought by saying that though he rejoiced in the gospel, verse 18, I will continue to rejoice. So let's pick up in verse 18. Philippians 1.18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Stop there. So last week with Paul going to jail, certain evangelists kind of filled the vacuum, right? That, that happened because of Paul's departure off the scene. And some of those evangelists had impure motives. They were selfish. They wanted to promote themselves. They were concerned with making a name for themselves while other evangelists were more on point. And they were, they were kind of propagating the same gospel that, that Paul was. And they were excited about what God was doing. But these, these envious evangelists that we talked about, they had mixed motives. And what was Paul's response? It was, listen, whether in pretense or in truth, regardless, I can get behind and rejoice that Jesus is being proclaimed. I can get excited about that. In that, I rejoice, he says. And continue in verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. Better yet, it translates, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now, why? Why could Paul continue to rejoice? Let's keep going, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so why could Paul continue to rejoice here? Verse 19 and 20. Hey girl. Yes, whether or not, regardless of what happens, it's a win. Now, why is it gonna be a win? He's, he's talking about a deliverance here. What kind of deliverance does he mean? Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Stop there. What kind of deliverance is Paul talking about here? Any takers? Yeah, Jessica. Spiritual, yeah. As in, he's gonna die and go to heaven? Is that the deliverance he means? Okay, okay, so he's looking at the spiritual fruit that would come from that. So, so whether he gets in jail or not, there's gonna be a deliverance, a spiritual deliverance for other people, okay? Is it a physical deliverance? Does he seem to think that he's gonna get out of prison? I mean, the context seems to suggest that, yeah? It kind of also intimates that that deliverance could be death, right? Like the ultimate deliverance. Like, listen, I could die in jail here. And if that happens, I'm going to be face to face with Jesus forevermore. And maybe he's, maybe he's referring to that deliverance as well. And honestly, it's hard to tell which deliverance he's talking about. Scholars see both of them in the text. And I, I, I think the context lends to both because Paul means both, honestly. Because again, like you said, both of these are a win for him. There's a very real tension here for Paul, right? You see it? Whether I live or whether I die, both living and dying are a win for me. Now, why are they a win? Because he says, listen, if I get out of prison, man, there's fruitful labor for me to be done. The gospel will continue to go forth. But how, how can this be a win for him if he dies? He gets, he gets to go to heaven, right? He gets to be with Jesus forevermore. On a given day, how often do we think about heaven? At all? I mean, I, I, I don't a lot, honestly. And Paul recognized, man, there is, a, there is a tension here in his life. This tug of war that was going on. And Paul presents this dilemma, verse 23. He says, man, I want to go. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ. That's far better. Why would it be better for, for Paul to, to get out of prison to go and be with Jesus? What's that? Yeah, yeah, right? Being with Jesus, like forevermore. I don't think we, I don't think, we think about that often enough. But let's talk about the practical implications of him no longer being alive. Like, do you know his story? Like after he got saved, I mean, if we go back to Acts chapter nine and he's blinded and he's waiting for someone to come and open his eyes, uh, Jesus, a spirit, uh, one, of the, one of the angels shows up to a guy named Ananias and says, hey, I want you to go lay your hands on, on Saul of Tarsus. And dude's like, no way, are you serious? He's killing Christians. And God tells Ananias, he is an instrument that's gonna have to suffer greatly for my name's sake. And man, Paul did. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 or 13, you see this list of just stuff he endured, shipwrecks, beatings, left for dead, stoned, thrown in prison over and over and over again. And so there's this practical, man, if I die and I go get to be with Jesus, I wouldn't have to deal with any of this stuff anymore. No brainer, right? And so to Paul, dying seems like the better proposition. Verse 23 says, man, I am hard pressed. Literally in the Greek, that means he is equally pressed from both sides by the options before him. But verse 22, he says, 
if I stay though? Man, it would result in fruitful labor. Verse 24, to remain in the flesh, in the body. Don't, don't see flesh as negative. He's talking about his earth suit here. If I stay in my earth suit, this means greater, greater value for you. This is more necessary on your account. What do you think tips the scales here for Paul? There's still a lot to be done. Yeah, yeah. The needs of the body to Paul far outweighed the desires of his heart. And it was more necessary and more important for him to live on mission for the call that God had placed on his life than for him to get out of Dodge, right? There is a radical others-centeredness to Paul's life that is only evident in someone who has experienced the other-centeredness of Jesus Christ when it comes and takes residence inside of us. Somebody who has seen Jesus and tasted the kind of life that is willing to pay the price so other people get to go free. That life, Jesus who came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many, which is the very life that we've not only been called to, but the very life that we have been joined to. See, what used to be our default setting before Jesus was self-interest. It was self-preservation and some of us still live in self-interest and self-preservation. But because of Jesus and salvation, there is an altogether different orientation for us now. Our inherent desire now is to move in other people's direction and to pour our lives out for people. But it takes practice to walk in that. Now question, why do you think Paul walks us through this decision-making process? Is it is it helpful or is it just what Paul did and let's move on to the next verse? Jessica, yes ma'am. Mm, yeah, Jessica said, I think, go ahead. Mm, yeah, you nailed it. She said, I think he's modeling for us what it should look like for a believer to make decisions, to prioritize. I, I, I think he's doing this so that we could follow in his path. You know, how do we decide whether or not to get involved in a ministry? How do we decide whether or not we should minister to somebody else's needs or not? Do we, do we consider only our own interests when we make decisions? What about the interests of other people? See, Paul is modeling where he's about to take us in chapter two to this same kind of sacrificial service-oriented life that Jesus Christ exemplified through his coming, through his taking on human flesh, through his living a sinless life, and then choosing to go to the cross and die on our behalf as sin. And I think the power of this passage is that Paul is showing us what it should look like for us to prioritize in our lives as followers of Jesus. How do you weigh the decisions that you make? I mean, let's be honest, are they based on your own comfort? Do the people around you and your sphere of influence in the body of Christ or in your family, do they, do they come into the equation at all? Or are decisions based on what's good for me? I can almost hear Paul saying, if, if I only had myself to consider, but he doesn't. And if we belong to Jesus, neither do we. And this is a really easy trap to fall into. 
especially being single. I mean, heck, it's hard if you're involved in a relationship. This struggle with thinking in terms of me rather than we. And it doesn't get any easier on the other side of I do either. If anything, it's, it's even harder. And so Paul says, listen, I can't think about myself, my desires, my wants here. We've all been called single or not to not merely look out for our own personal interests, but to the interests of others. Philippians chapter two, verse four, that's where we're heading. Man, in chapter two, we're gonna get confronted with some very hard things to swallow, some radical examples of this life of Jesus, this poured out life. We're gonna read things in chapter two like, like he emptied himself. We're gonna encounter themes like, like Jesus laying aside his godly and divine prerogatives so that he could go lower still to wash our feet and condescend from the highest heights of heaven so that he could become sin on our behalf. And this, this isn't just an ideal that we're called to, this is the life that has come and taken residence inside of us. And so each and every one of us that have confessed Jesus Christ have been joined to the same sacrificial, servant-oriented life of Christ. And so Paul recognizes, man, I know what I'd like, I know what my, 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 my desire is here, but what he prefers, it does not come before ultimately that there is a greater good here. And what is that greater good? Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Those two words, progress and joy, they go together in the Greek. They're connected with the same preposition. They're both modified by that phrase, in the faith which means that real progress in the faith will be marked by a genuine joy in the faith. Paul's priorities were rooted in building up people in their faith, helping them to grow in their Christ-likeness so that they could experience genuine joy. A joy that, as we see, is not rooted in our circumstances. A joy that not even death can take away from us. Because Paul said, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die, it's, it's gain here. I'm, I'm glad Paul stuck around because it's clear from the rest of Philippians that the believers in Philippi, they needed him. They needed to learn in chapter two what it looked like to live humbly and to live with an other-centeredness. They needed to know in chapter three what to look for when the Judaizers came in and false teaching began to infiltrate the church. They needed to know in chapter four, verse one and two, that there were the, the, the seeds of disunity starting to crop up in the church because Syntyche and Euodia weren't getting along. Chapter four, there, there was a seedbed for disunity and disharmony in the church at Philippi. I'm, I'm glad Paul stuck around for them and for our sakes. And Paul laid his desires on the altar so that his brothers and sisters in the faith might grow up. Can we say the same? Is there anybody in your world right now that you can say that you are working with and sacrificing for on behalf of their progress and joy in the faith? Or, or are you like the Philippians being poured into on any fronts for your progress and joy in the faith? If not, then let me say your faith journey is suffering. God loves you, Jesus died and saved you, but you're missing out on one of the greatest tools to Christian maturity and growth. 
one another. One another. That's where he's taking us next in verses 27 through the end of chapter one and into chapter two. The absolute necessity of Christian community, standing firm in one faith, united in mind, intent on one purpose, elevating other people's needs above our own. He doesn't say that we aren't to meet our own needs and care about ourselves, but not just our own interests, the interests of others as well. There's so much more to these verses. We've barely scratched the surface. But for our purposes tonight, the question is, what drives my priorities? What worldview are we authoring determine, to determine what is a value in our lives? Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.